Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. My name is PJ Ryan. I'm one of the elders here at Calvary Bible Church. We're really glad that you came. We'll be reading from Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Join with me in reading. Malachi 2, 10 through 16. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning. Y'all doing okay today? Everybody good? All right. Uh, But if you have your Bible, stay there in Malachi chapter 2. As you probably know, we are in our ninth week in our series in the Minor Prophets. We're spending the fall semester going through three different Minor Prophets in the Old Testament. We started out by uh, doing the shortest book in the Old Testament, the book of Obadiah. Obadiah, in a word, is the word of pride. It's the pride of the Edomites towards the nation of Israel. We then spent four weeks going through the book of Haggai. Haggai, in a word, is mission, the mission to rebuild the temple. And Malachi, we are going to spend six or seven weeks going through this book. We're in our third week today uh, of Malachi. And Malachi, in a word, is the word of genuine. The word genuine. All right. I want to start with a little bit of an experiment this morning, okay? All right, so I want you to kind of respond back to me, you know, give me some feedback on this particular question. What are, what are some things in our culture that our culture deems important? What are some things in the world says are important for our lives to measure our success? or Money. What's that? Yeah, social media followers, that's right. So money, social media, what else, what else does our culture say is really important? Football, yeah. The idol of Nick Saban. Okay, that's right, man. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, what, else, what else do people say? Looks, appearances, wealth. What else? Environment. Yeah, the environment. Yep. Yeah, status. Well, I find it interesting, and I knew this was going to be the case. What is the one thing that was not mentioned? There is one thing that is the most sacred of all human relationships, an irrevocable covenant that our culture doesn't seem to value as God values. What I find interesting is the word marriage. 
But the view of the culture towards marriage is not just out in the world, but it's also affected the church at large. And guess what? Why not? I mean, the enemy, the God of this world, if he can deceive the church as to the importance and the irrevocable nature of marriage, if he can deceive us in that regard, then not only will the fabric of society be affected, but also the, the togetherness, the unity of the body of Christ will also be affected. In the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 2, what he talks about is the nature of genuine marriage or a God-centered, God-fearing, God-honoring marriage. And what Malachi chapter 2 verses 10 through 16 does, it gives us two different safeguards in order to protect the sanctity of marriage. So if you have your Bible, go to Malachi chapter 2, and today we'll be going from verses 10 through 16, and uh, I... I told, I told my wife uh, this week that I was going to talk about marriage on Sunday, and she said, um, what, are you going to sing my praises? Um, I probably should. We've made it for 15 years, so we've done something. She's done something right, or at least she has endless patience to put up with me. Um, but also, you know, whenever you talk about the issue of marriage, you know, it's a kind of a difficult subject, but just because it's difficult doesn't mean we can just skip it, Right? But today what I hope to do is speak the truth in love. And what Malachi does, he talks about this most important, irrevocable, permanent uh, union between a male and a female called marriage. But let us very quickly set the stage for our discussion this morning. The central message of the minor prophets particularly is this, that covenant blessing requires what? Covenant faithfulness. The covenant blessing from God requires Israel to have covenant faithfulness. As mentioned in the beginning of the book of Malachi, the Malachi is organized into six different disputes on a variety of things. And in one word, it is the word genuine in all, the, all of those particular different disputes. How does the book of Malachi begin? They begin with the first dispute over the nature of God's love. What's the question? Does God really love the nation of Israel? And God, in Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, provides proof for the nation of Israel that he truly does love them. So dispute number one is over the nature of God's love. Dispute number two is over the genuine nature of Israel's worship. And dispute number three is over the covenant faithfulness of Israel in their marriages. So if you have your text, notice it with me. Malachi 2, 10 through 16 breaks down into two main sections. You have verses 10 through 12 is safeguard number one. And then 13 through 16 is safeguard number 2. But Malachi 2.10, as most of the disputes, begin with God speaking, but this dispute does not. It actually begins with a moment of self-reflection. Notice Malachi 2, verse 10, it says this. Who is the we? Do we not all have one Father? Has not God, one God created it? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? If you notice here, this Malachi chapter 2 verse 10 begins with a moment of self-reflection. And self-reflection always begins with our proper view of God. Notice what does he call? What do they call God? We have one father who has created us, that God is sovereign. He is their creator. He is their father. He is their master. He is their king. As we saw in Malachi 1 and 2. Um, who's talking? 
Do we not all have one Father? Who is the we here in Malachi chapter 2? If you skip down to verse 11 and 12, you'll notice that Israel and Judah and Jerusalem is all talked about in the third person. So the we here, in my opinion, is not the nation of Israel speaking, but it is actually the priests of Israel. Why are they talking? Why are they having a moment of self-reflection? The priests in Israel are the spiritual leaders of the day. They're the ones that are supposed to set the example to the nation of Israel on how to live and also how to sacrifice before God. And what's the problem? That the priests to this point, as we saw in Malachi 1 and 2, they have let the nation of Israel get away with not offering their best, but offering their leftovers. And no longer are the nation of Israel and the people in the fields bringing their best sheep to sacrifice before the Lord, but they are bringing what they're lame and they're blind. And so the priests are waking up in Malachi chapter 2 verse 10 over this dispute between God and Israel, and they're waking up with a moment of self-reflection. Why? What did God just get, get done doing in Malachi chapter 2 verses 3 and 4? Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring. He's talking to the priests here. And I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. Um, I think the priests realize that if they don't shape up real quick, that God is going to spread dung on their faces. That's what he says. The priests here, in a moment of self-reflection, say, whoa, 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 let's take a time out. There's some problems in the nation of Israel. And quite frankly, if I was a priest, I don't want dung on my face, okay? And my kids would say, poo. Okay, sorry, guys. I'm in kindergarten. Um, they don't want that. And no wonder that the Lord is about to punish the nation of Israel, and particularly the priests, for their lack of genuine worship and their lack of genuine view of marriage. Remember, the nation of Israel goes through a cycle in the Old Testament. I mean, God must get so irritated with the nation of Israel because they have to relearn the same lessons again and again and again and again. There is a cycle that Israel goes through. It begins with pride and then Israel leads to rebellion and then God disciplines Israel, then God restores them, then they have humility and then they have success. As I talked about the last couple of weeks, I believe the nation of Israel, specifically here in Malachi, is on the second stage. That they are in the rebellion phase of that cycle. So then they realize what's next. They have pride, the rebellion, and then the discipline of the Lord. They see what's coming down the pike, and the priests are realizing that the Lord is about to spread refuse on their faces. He's about to discipline them, to bring them back to the Lord. And so they have a moment of... Self-reflection. Um, one of the things I've realized as I've gotten a little older, I'm not, I'm not quite 40 yet, um, 38, okay, 38 and a half, all right, getting close, um, is that as we get older, we have fewer moments of self-reflection. And I think it's absolutely critical in your relationship with God to have moments just like this in Malachi chapter 2 to see where you even are in your relationship with God, especially if you are a spiritual leader. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing as such you incur a stricter judgment. James chapter 3, verse 1. So if you notice here, the priests are waking up, and then notice what they realize is going on at the end of verse 10. 
Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of their fathers? So what are they realizing? Not only are they disrespecting God, not only is the pending discipline and punishment uh, pending to the priests, but they also realize here, Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, that they are dealing treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers. So there's something going on. They're profaning, they're dealing with one another treacherously. They're profaning the covenant of our fathers. The question I have when I read verse 10 is what covenant is he talking about? So in the Old Testament, you have the Abrahamic covenant, you have the Noahic covenant, you have the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. But the only unconditional covenant in the Old Testament is the Mosaic covenant, where Israel agrees to be obedient to the law of God and that God in return will bless them So I believe that the priests are waking up and they're realizing that we're dealing treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the Mosaic covenant of our fathers. And they realize before it's too late that there's something coming, that the discipline of the Lord is pending, that they're standing on the edge of the abyss. But then notice verse 11. They go on. Judah has dealt treacherously. Now notice this next part. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. If you notice here, he has three different names for the nation of Israel. Judah, Israel, and then Jerusalem. question is why. I'm not Malachi, clearly. I'm not 2,500 years old. But I think what he's doing is he's saying every Jew living in the land of Israel has created an abomination. And what is that abomination? For Judah has two things. Profane the sanctuary of the Lord, which God loves. And number two, he has married the daughter of a foreign God. That there is an abomination happening in the nation of Israel. Number one, they are profaning the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. We talked about that phrase last week. That's what he's referring to in the sacrificial system in Malachi chapter 1, 6 through 2, 9. That Israel is profaning the sanctuary of God, that they are not offering their best to the Lord, but they're offering to God their leftovers in the very place that the Lord loves. Why does God love his sanctuary, i.e. the temple? Well, three reasons. Number one is because his presence resides there. Number two, the temple represents his holiness. And number three, the temple shines his glory to the nations. What does he say earlier in chapter 2? That his name will be great. That glory will be given to his name. When Israel gives their leftovers to the temple, what do the other nations of the world say? They look at what's going on and they say, well, their God must not be the one true God because he lets them get away with that. So they are profaning the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. And then number two, they have married the daughter of a foreign God. Now, if you remember the historical context of Malachi, what's going on in the nation of Israel? So 85 years ago, they rebuilt the temple. They finished it under Haggai. And so there is probably the great or great-great-grandchildren of the time period of Zerubbabel. So then what happens? When they return to the nation of Israel, what do they find in their land? They find foreigners in their hometowns, in the nation of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem. So Israel, in a sense, doesn't heed the instruction of the law to marry fellow Jews, Jews marrying Jews, but instead they're marrying the daughter of a foreign god. But what's interesting is, I think it gets a little worse. 
Because some commentaries say that verse 16 talks about how God hates divorce. So what a lot of scholars believe that the Jews are doing is that they are married to Jewish women. They are divorcing their wives so that they can then marry the daughter of a foreign god. So they have created, they have committed an abomination, profaned the sanctuary of the Lord by giving God their leftovers and by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Why is that such a big deal? Why is God saying, like I said, it's not easy to talk about, but we can't just skip it. Why is God saying that marrying the daughter of a foreign god is an abomination, as it says earlier in the text? Um, Because it is a direct violation of the law of God. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4 is where it spells out God's instruction for Israelites to marry Israelites. Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. Verse 3 of Deuteronomy 7 says this, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn, listen, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. The reason the Israelites are supposed to marry fellow Israelites is that they would not be taken away to serve other gods. That Israel's heart for the Lord would remain steadfast. What happens? Is that true that, you know, if Israelites marry the daughter of foreign gods, that their heart will be taken away? Is that, is that true? What happened to Solomon? 1 Kings 11 verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Marital safeguard number one in Malachi chapter two is that a Jew should marry a Jew because they are of the same faith. Can I just translate that today? Christians should marry Christians. And all parents of little children in the room say, That if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you aren't married, okay, don't marry a non-believer. Don't do it. You know, when I was looking at this, a commentator basically said about this phrase, has married the daughter of a foreign god, it would be like a Christian today marrying a devil worshiper. And I read that, I was like, man, that's kind of harsh, man, but kind of true. And why is that a big deal? Okay, it's because what? That if your son marries somebody that's not a believer, his heart will slowly be turned away from the Lord. It's just the way it works. It's much easier to pull something down than to push something up. I think sometimes people get married in in thinking that they will change their spouse. Good luck. Okay. It's probably the opposite. A genuine marriage, a God-honoring, God-centered, God-fearing marriage begins by marrying a fellow Christian. I was uh, working on this sermon this week, and I got convicted about this point. And so I wanted to make sure, you know, my seven, five, and two-year-old daughters had heard from dad firsthand that they need to marry a Christian man. Okay? All right, I say that very emphatically today, a Christian man. And so I have my seven-year-old and my five-year-old, and they're in the kitchen, and I just got done prepping, and, and, I, and I 
turn to Bryn, my seven-year-old, and say, Bryn, listen, baby, I want you to marry a Christian man. And she said, Dad, I know. <laughs> she got the memo, okay? I tell her that all the time, but I wanted to make darn sure that she was very careful, that she would, she knows that the biblical standard for her is to marry a fellow Christian. I mean, what does it say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6? It says, do not be what? Unequally yoked. Can I just speak some plain English here? Um, we in church culture, like I said a couple weeks ago, we believe that there is an 11th commandment that that thou shalt be nice, okay? That we are afraid to be honest with people. Friends, listen to me. If your child was about to run into Memorial Parkway, would you just say, well, it's their life. I just hope it, hope it works out for them. Of course you wouldn't. What would you do? You would grab them and you would chastise them and you would warn them. If you're a parent of children that aren't married yet, please, today, tell them, hey, listen, you should marry a believer in Jesus Christ. Amen? Do not be unequally yoked. Be honest. Speak the truth in love. And if you're a parent, tell your kids, okay? And if you're dating, if you're interested in somebody that's a non-believer, I would pray for that person that's not saved and pray that they would come to Christ, but don't go there. Because once you say, I do, it's done. Right? If you're not married, whether widowed, young, old, old teenager, Bryn Bradshaw is seven years old, seven years old, get married in 40 years, okay, not anytime soon. Marry a Christian. Why? It's because the fabric of that marriage will erode with the lack of similar beliefs. So that's what Malachi tells the Jewish nation, that you should not marry the daughters of foreign gods. He's trying to protect the safeguard of marriage, and marriage is kind of the foundation of the whole nation because children are produced. And then notice in verse 12, Notice the consequence of those that profane the sanctuary of the Lord are those that marry the daughter of a foreign god, verse 12. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. That God is so serious about them not profaning the name of God that they should be cut off from the tents. They should be cut off from the fellowship of Israel. Um, God was so serious. I want you to think about something. God is, was so serious about Jews marrying Jews that God created something that would be a physical marker for them not to marry the daughter of a foreign god. Circumcision is not just a sign of the covenant, but it's also a sign of exclusion. That there is a physical marker that separates a male Jew from the rest of the world. That there's a sign that they are to be different, they are excluded, that they are unique, that they are to marry their own kind. So remember here, the priests are speaking, they're nervous, that if they do not turn around, if they do not lead the nation of Israel back to God, that God will fulfill his Discipline of the Lord by spreading refuse on their faces, so they are panicking a little bit, and rightfully so. And they have a moment of self-reflection. 
But then this is where dispute number three really begins is in verse 13. God speaks first. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning. Because no longer, he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So God speaks here and God then presents to them a charge or an allegation or something that's going on. And what is he saying? Verse 13. This thing that you do, the very altar that you profane, the very altar that you bring your leftovers, you weep upon. Um, why? I would say they probably need something from God. Can I just say something really quick? Um, the temptation is, in life, is that when we need God, we pray. And we seek his altar and we weep before him. Um, but I think it's better to have a thriving, growing relationship with God all the time. Because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it from, with, with favor from your hand. Here the Lord says, yeah, you come to me when you need me. But no longer do I accept your sacrifices because you are profaning the sanctuary of the Lord that he loves and that you are marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Then notice verse 14. So God, this is the accusation or this is the uh, allegation that God makes that, you know, you come to me when you need me, but you're not fulfilling my covenant, my commandments. And then Israel, of course, what, me? You know, this is my daughter, you know, coloring the wall and saying it wasn't me and she's holding the orange crayon. Okay, this is what Israel's doing. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God dismisses their sacrifice for lack of genuine worship, and God dismisses their sacrifice here specifically for their small or dismal view of marriage. Listen, marriage is an irrevocable covenant. The safeguards that he provides in Malachi, safeguard number one is that Christians should marry another Christian, and safeguard number two is once married, stay married. Um, be careful. Can I just say something really quick off the beaten path a little bit? Be very careful not to let culture shape your view of truth. Can I say that again? Be careful not to let culture shape your view of truth. The church is an exporter of truth. That's what we're here for. Even if the truth is difficult, even if the truth is uncomfortable, that's what we're here to do. We're here to live out the truth and to proclaim it with boldness. Then notice verse 15. But not, not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. Notice that, notice that phrase in verse 15. What is that even talking about? But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. So in verse 14, they're dismissing, they're profaning the covenant of their wife and their marriage. But how are they doing that? We'll see that in verse 16. We haven't really explained yet how they're doing it. But then notice, well, I'm just going to skip down to verse 16. This is how they're doing it. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So what's going on in the nation of Israel? That they are readily divorcing their wife whenever it gets old and tiresome. They 
toss away their marriage like that old ratty t-shirt in your drawer. It's just not something to be valued and something to be discarded. And notice what he says here in verse 15. Those who have that view of marriage, that marriage is not this irrevocable covenant, that it's not this permanent thing, that once I say I do, it's done. Those who seek to separate from their marriage, those who seek not the Lord in their marriage, what does it say? Those who seek divorce, who discard their marriage, but not one has done so who has the remnant of the Spirit. What? I've never met somebody who was on fire for God and wanted a divorce. Never seen it. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. In other words, this. If people who are seeking to destroy the covenant of marriage, that they do not have the remnant of the Spirit within them. One who is flippant about divorce is not walking by the Spirit or probably does not have the Spirit of God within them. Um, I'm going to say something really quick. My men, men about my age, so I'm 38 and a half, like I said earlier. Um, men about my age, they fall on their head and do some really dumb stuff. Anybody know that? I mean, they just go through something called a midlife crisis and they do some really foolish things. I've known men about my age that will just just dis- dismiss their marriage as if it nothing mattered, as if it just never was to be valued. I have a I know of a person in the past that he was about my age and one day he just sat down in his living room with all of his kids who's been married for some 25 years and he said, "Children, I'm leaving your mother. You don't think those kids are going to resent him the rest of their life? That that guy ruined his life in one foul swoop. Friends, listen to me. If you're thinking about divorce, if you're married here today, listen, don't go there. I would encourage you not to go there. What does God say in verse 16? For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and he... And him who covers his garment with wrong. Now, what's going on with the garment thing? This particular reference to garment is, a, is our cultural equivalent to a wedding ring. It is a symbol of marriage. Think about what happened to Boaz and Ruth in Ruth chapter 3. What did, what did Boaz do? He put the wing of his coat over Ruth, symbolizing what? That he would protect her and marry her. So the very symbol of marriage... And him who covers his garment with wrong, the very symbol of marriage that they are desecrating, the protection of a male to a female, they are covering with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Once married, stay married. Marriage is a covenant, a lifelong commitment. It is irrevocable, permanent. God created marriage to be that way between a man and a woman for life if you are married and your husband is not as good looking as he used to be you know sorry laurel um definitely not as good looking as i used to be if your if your husband has gained a few pounds you know once you say i do it's done 
I've done a lot of premarital counseling over the years, and that's one thing I always push into these people that are about to get married. Once you say, I do, it's done. Once married, stay married. That is the second safeguard that God gives in the nation of Israel, to not be just dismissive about their marriages so they can then marry the daughter of foreign gods, but to stay committed to their wife and to their spouse. Um, married people in the room, I, I've been married for 15 years, and by some standards, I'm a rookie. I know that there's a 70th wedding anniversary in this room coming up very, very soon. I'm an amateur by any by stretch of the imagination, and I know at times marriage can be difficult, and it can be painful, and it can be really hard. I, I know. Okay. I've been there. Okay. But I would encourage you and your spouse to make a commitment to one another, never to mention the word divorce in an argument. You know, I think sometimes when we fight and when we argue and we're disappointed with our spouse, that's kind of the, the club we reach for, right? When we feel like there's no other way out of that union, we reach for that club. That's, that, guys, take that off the table. Uh, someone went up to Billy Graham's wife, Billy Graham, the famous evangelist. Someone went up to Billy Graham's wife and asked her, have you ever considered divorce? And she said, no, but I have considered murder. Um, married people in the room, be content with your spouse. Be content. Your husband's not as good looking as he used to be. I know he's not, but be content. Men in the room, be content. The grass, let me just listen, the grass is not greener on the other side. That if you pursue divorce, you're only opening up more pain for your life and for your children. Be content. What does Proverbs 5 say? Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving bind, hind, and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress? And then he goes on and he says, One who follows an adulteress is like an ox that goes to the slaughter. Marital safeguard number one is marry a Christian. Marital safeguard number two is once married, stay married. The point of the passage is this. God's safeguard for marriage is kind of all put into one point. Genuine marriage, God-honoring, God-fearing begins by marrying a Christian and by staying married to that person for a lifelong commitment and covenant that we see. Do you guys agree with this? Like I said in the beginning, man, I think the culture influences our mind on truth. But this is God's standard, friend. Once you say, I do, it's done. You know, so you better be really careful who you marry, okay? You should be cautious because you can't get rid of it. They are, you are stuck for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. But the question I have is to answer, so what? How do we apply this passage to our life? And before I close, I want to just address two different groups of people. And you fall into one of these two groups. It's a certainty. I know you do. Number one group is if you're not married. And number two group is if you are married. Number one, if you are not married. Maybe you're widowed. Maybe you're young. Maybe you're single. If the Lord is leading you, guiding you, if you think that 
young guy with full of muscles like and big hair like I had when I was 21 years old, if you think he's cute or whatever and you want to marry him, all right, you need to seek the Lord. And you need to be sure that he is a Christian. You won't, you won't marry someone perfect, but you better be perfectly sure the one you marry is a Christian. How do you tell? How do you tell if you... Um, if someone's a Christian that you're interested in, one of the best ways, you know, when we're dating, we all put our best foot forward, right? We all show what we think the other person wants. Um, if you really want to know if somebody's a believer, just go put that person around similar, same-sex people. So if you're dating a guy, put him around some Christian godly guys for him to, for them to kind of spy on you. But if you aren't sure they're a believer, then do two, one of two things. I think you should pray for them. You know, if you if the Lord, if you feel like the Lord is asking you to marry somebody that's a non-believer, first off, the Lord wouldn't ask you to do that because it's against his law. But if you feel like the Lord is, then pray for that soul. Pray for them to come to Christ. So pray for them, and if they don't become a Christian, then don't go there. Marriage, family is the fabric of society. Church and a healthy relationship with God is the fabric of society. If your marriage is in turmoil, listen, if your marriage is in turmoil, every single area of your life will be affected. Amen? I'm going to argue to have a rough, spot, rough season with your wife or your spouse, and it affects every single part of your life. You can't work properly, you can't think properly, you can't sleep properly, you can't raise your kids properly, that if you don't have that rock-solid marriage, if it's on a rocky season, which we all have, it will affect every single area of your life. And there is no greater turmoil that you can open on yourself than marrying a non-believer. Because if you do not have that shared foundation of truth, of relationship with God, it's going to make your marriage very, very difficult. Amen? Like my 7, 5, and 2-year-old, I'm already pegging it into their brain that they need to marry a Christian dude. Every night I sit there, um, I pray with my daughters at the end of every night, and um, I usually pray for them to be believers and followers of Jesus and believe that the Bible is true. I repeat that all the time to them. And then right then and there I pray for their spouses. And I say... Um, Lord, I pray that you would bring a man that loves you, that loves my daughter, and that could provide for them financially. I'm already starting to put the thoughts in their mind of who they should marry. So group number one is if you're not married, if you're interested, marry a believer. And the group number two, if you are married, stay married. I don't know your past. I don't care to know if you don't want to tell me. I don't know what's going on, but if you have said, I do, if you're currently married, stay married. Amen? Be married. And I know that um, marriage goes through different seasons of life. I know sometimes that divorce seems like the only option. That there's just so much turmoil, so much rockiness. Maybe the spouse betrayed your trust. Maybe they just spend too much money, or maybe they're just ignoramuses, okay? And it just seems like divorce is the only option. Friends, take that off the table. And if your marriage is in turmoil, pray for your spouse. Pray for the other person. Number two, be self-controlled. 
you know, you can't, there's only one person in the world that you can control, and that is yourself. And if your marriage is in turmoil, then be self-controlled. Be an example. Don't fan the flame in an argument. Don't reach for the nearest club of words to hit your spouse with. And if your marriage is rocky here today, I, I mean, I've been in ministry for 10 years. I mean, I've seen a lot of different things going on in marriages. But if your marriage is rocky today, then I'm going to just say two things. The number one, God, Christ is probably not the center of your marriage. If it's rocky, if there's turmoil in your home, God is probably not the center of it, right? And number two, if your, if your marriage is rocky, spend time with your spouse. I would imagine, okay, I've never met somebody that wanted a divorce that was on fire for God. Never seen it. And I've never seen somebody want a divorce that spent a lot of time with their spouse. Usually what we do in marriages is that we take kids and we put them in between us and then the wedge grows further and further and further between a male and a female. You know, spend time with your spouse. If your marriage is rocky, if it's on the rocks, if it's difficult and you're arguing, you can't see eye to eye, go for a walk. Go out to dinner. I, I tell, uh, I do premarital counseling a lot. And I tell every premarital counseling couple that you should do something every week, every month, and every year. Every week you should go on a date night. Every month you should have a budget meeting because that's the number one cause of divorce. And every year you should take a trip. Go do something you love together. You know, if your marriage is currently rocky, I I would imagine there was a time that you really liked your spouse and you got married to them for a reason. You liked them at one time. We don't have arranged marriages anymore, okay? You know, maybe I'll do that for my daughters, but um, anyways, okay. Um, you married them for a reason. At one particular time, you loved being around them. So if your marriage to that particular person is rocky, go get back to spending time together. Track with me? Before we close, I, I just would like to say something really quick. The church is the exporter of truth. That's what we do. We live the truth. We're lights of the world, we're salt and light of the earth, and we proclaim the truth from the pulpit, even if it's difficult or inconvenient. Um, but perhaps the most important and difficult truth one could ever grasp is not just the nature of God's view of marriage, but also that you are a sinner, that you need Jesus Christ. Without understanding that you are a sinner and that you are far from God, you will never understand why you need the gospel to begin with. If you've never had a relationship with God, if you are far from him, you do not know what it means to enter into a relationship with the Lord. Well, Jesus Christ came and he died to pay for your sin in full so that you can believe and be saved. Acts 4.12 says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. If you're unsure of your relationship with God, if you want to talk to somebody about becoming a Christian and believing in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to come see me after the service or see PJ or any of the elders or anybody. Father, thank you for this morning. Um, it's a difficult thing to talk about is marriage, the nature of the most sacred covenant that you've given to us. And, and it's difficult because we're fallen human beings and, and we struggle and we sin and we make mistakes. And Lord, uh, for we have a high priest that could sympathize with our weaknesses and that we should approach him with boldness, the throne of grace. 
And Lord, I pray for those that, that have struggles in their marriage, which we all do at times. I pray that they would uh, find in you, they would seek you, they would, they would find a solace in you, comfort and love. And Lord, thank you for your son and how he's come and he's died for us, that you have presented us with eternal life free of charge, that if we believe in him, you, we shall be saved and have eternal life. Um, Lord, I just thank you for Calvary Bible Church. I thank you for just the generosity of the people. Be with all those that aren't here today. I pray you'd lift them up to you. And thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.